Um, I also wanted, just before we get going, I just wanted to make mention, because we, we kind of found out last minute, um, and so it wasn't in our weekly email, it wasn't in our announcements, but we, I've been talking with Greg Friesen from Calvary Church, who's part of our, our Salt and Light family of churches, and um, one thing we've been talking about is, is they've felt the Lord impress upon them to bring back some nights of worship here in the, in the coming months, and so I said, well, I'd, I'd love to really get in on that as a church, and so... If you're interested, uh, next Sunday night, so the 23rd at 7 p.m., Calvary's going to have a night of worship. You are all invited. Um, I know for certain I'm going to be there, and, uh, and our family will be there, but we'd love to have other people. If you, if you just want to come and you want to engage in a night of just worship with the Lord, um, it's going to be good. I, I can say that with complete confidence. It's going to be really, really good. So that's next Sunday night. All right, so um, talking about communion this morning, we're going we're gonna to obviously partake of communion, and so this just came out of that, I, I don't know when the last time is that we actually taught on communion itself as part of taking it, apart from, you know, like a five-minute sort of thing, and so it was like, maybe let's, let's teach on communion again, that was kind of our thought, and, and let's just kind of set, set our hearts, the posture of our hearts to receive it this morning. So one, one of the most interesting experiences I had with communion uh, was at an Anglican wedding a number of years back. And, and it, had, it was something I had never experienced before. It was it, just the, the entire way that communion was done was so different from what I was used to. And so as part of that was uh, we were all called up, which we've done here before, but there was the common cup and, that they had. And so I was like, oh, the common cup. Never partaken of that, and they have a little towel, and they, they wipe it every time every, someone takes it. And so, how many of you have ever been able to like, have partake of a, of a common cup? Yeah, so it's, it's a really different experience when it comes to communion. And, you know, and it was just so different from evangelical culture. The culture that we have in, in the evangelical church is just, we, we do things typically a certain way. And, and, you know, and I was thinking about even as communion as a kid. Like, how, how did I think of communion as a kid? And I, and I remember one thing I just remember from communion is I was terrified of spilling juice. Like, it was just like, I cannot spill this juice, right? And then, you, and then you get this cup, and it's like right to the brim. And you're like, why are these people filling this cup, like, right to the brim? Are they trying to test me? Like, whether I'm going to spill the juice? And then, well, and look at our, our sanctuary. I mean, man, this is like... This is terrifying for kids. Carpet? I, I, like, I wonder, I wonder, I've wondered over the years, what do our kids think about communion? Like, like what do kids here think? When we, when we enter into this, like, what, what do they, what do kids think about what we're doing? And, and I'm sure that there is a host of questions about communion that don't get asked. Maybe even from adults. Maybe there's questions that we have that we just don't ask because maybe we don't feel like we have the forum to ask or whatever. And so that's why this morning, I just titled this morning, Why Communion? Why? What, what is this thing that we do that's, that's covered with under blankets or not, not blankets, but tablecloths? Like what, what is this? Like, if, like I think about if someone walked in and they knew nothing about this, they'd be like, what are these people doing? So that's the question. One of the kind of overarching questions I want to ask this morning is, why do we partake in communion? 
Now, Jesus, you would get, well, the obvious answer is, well, duh, Jesus tells us to. So why do we partake in communion? Well, Jesus clearly says you're to do this. Okay, case closed. You guys good? You good? No? Jesus said to do it. <laughs> so, but even that. So Jesus tells us, he says, do this in remembrance of me. But is this like some sort of anniversary thing that we're doing? Like, is this like we're remembering in memorial? Like, is that what this is? Like, we come together, kind of like we would do for something like 9-11, and we solemnly remember, and we have a moment of silence. And is it, like, is that what this is? Are, are, are we like a Jesus fan club? Like, do we just, do we, do we get together, we sing some songs, you know, we think, we remember, we fondly remember Jesus and who he was? You know, that, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the John Lennon Memorial that you have in New York City, where you come upon this, this, this thing in Central Park and all these people are sitting around and they're, they're there and they're kind of, they're singing all these kumbaya type John Lennon, Yoko Ono songs and they're all remembering Lennon and they're all like, and, and, they're, and some are crying and like it's, is that what this is? Is that what, is that what, is this what we're doing with Jesus? It's kind of like John Lennon? Or is it something more? Is it something far more than, than that? And, and here's the other question. If I, if I never make a point of partaking in communion and physically joining the body for communion, what does it matter? Do you ever think about that? Like, like if I never join together and do this together with others, does it matter? So those are some of the things that I want to I want to think about and draw out as we, as we look at Scripture this morning. Why does communion matter? First, is we are reminding ourselves of the new covenant we are called into. So in Luke 22, 20, when Jesus has the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. So there is, there is something that the old is passing away, the new has come. And so, and, and, and it, what it draws, this, this thing of covenant is huge as it pertains to communion because it's drawing us back to who God is, where he says again and again in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. We see that, it's in Genesis 17, we see it in Exodus 6, we see it in Jeremiah 30 later when he's speaking to the people and there's this thing of, of covenant. So when when he brings the people out of Egypt and then he brings them through the Red Sea and he miraculously saves them from these 400 years of oppression. And, and Israel, to this day, they see that as the Lord's salvation. That was the salvation of the Lord for their people. And he brings them out. And then in Exodus 19, there's this covenant that the Lord calls them to. And it calls the people, as his people, to faithfulness. And, and, and it's, it's this ongoing, and despite the ongoing unfaithfulness of the people, because that's what marks the journey of God's people, is this ongoing unfaithfulness that they are operating in, this ongoing disobedience, like just not listening to what the Lord is calling them and to do and who he's calling them to be. And despite that, God continues to speak of covenant. So Ezekiel 37 as there's this kind of prophetic picture, the Lord is speaking through Ezekiel about these, these dead bones, and they're going to be these dry bones that are dead, and they're going to be raised up. 
And then it says there, I will make, God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he's drawing them back and drawing us again to this reminder. This is about covenant. And, it's, and we see this all throughout as we come into the New Testament and Jesus, the way that he interacts with his disciples, the way that he calls us into this new covenant. It's about covenantal relationship. This is why we see this in marriage as representative of Jesus' relationship to the church. It's about covenant. So Israel was called out of Egypt. God brought this salvation to them. And, and clearly Israel to this day sees that as God's salvation. And it's this foreshadowing actually of the work of the cross. That's what, that's what the Exodus is. It's this, this foreshadowing of being called out of sin, being called out of darkness, being saved, not now just by this exodus out of Egypt, but now we are saved by the blood of Jesus. And it's, it's no accident, obviously, that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus when? At Passover, right? It was, at, it was the celebration of God's salvation for Israel, and it was the foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do for all people. And so it's in this covenantal relationship that we are, we're called, we're, we're beckoned, we're invited as God's people to live into this covenantal relationship with God. As, as ones who are in Christ, what does Scripture speak of us as? We are, we are the ransomed ones, right? We are the, the redeemed ones. We are the reconciled ones. We are those who are reborn. We are a chosen people. So what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, and he's, he's taking almost the very words out of Exodus 19, and he's now putting them, and, and he's attributing them to who we are as God's people. He says, but you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may. So this, this who you are, this, it has a calling to it. You're being a chosen people, a holy nation, one for God's own possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So there's this constant, this is another theme in the New Testament, this constant theme of darkness and light. You were in darkness. You have been called out. You now, now walk as children of light, right? Ephesians 5. That's what it is. Don't, don't, don't partake anymore in the works of darkness. Walk as children of light. Why? Because God himself is light. In him there is what? No darkness. So there's this thing of you were in darkness. This is who you were. You're not that any longer. Walk as this and reject the works of darkness. We, thank, we sang about that in multiple songs this morning. Not, not even purposely, but that's just, that's, that's in those songs, right, that, that we're declaring that we don't, we don't want to be in darkness. Why would we ever, as children of God, want to be in darkness? And so communion is meant to be an ongoing reminder of this new covenant that's brought by Jesus. And it, and it calls us to, are we living in alignment with this covenant? 
Are you living in alignment to this covenantal relationship that God has brought to us? Second reason why does communion matter? We are proclaiming the enormity of the cross and the blood of Jesus over our lives. I'll say that again. We are proclaiming the enormity of the cross and the blood of Jesus over our lives. So Ephesians 2, 13 to 16 speaks of this so clearly where it says, Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.16 says that in one, he did this in one body to reconcile. So in the body of Christ, this was done to reconcile us as Jews and Gentiles, because that's the context of these verses, that there was this separation between the Jewish people and everyone else, the Gentiles, and through the body of Christ, he reconciled them both to God through the cross. And so there's this God's plan was for this new humanity to emerge out of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that there would no longer be any separation, that it is for everyone. Now, who were we before? It says that if, if, you, were, if you were not, we were apart, apart from Jesus, so everyone who's apart from Christ was without hope and without God. And if you go back further to the beginning of Ephesians 2, what do you see as, as who we are then? If, if we're apart from Christ, we have no hope, we're without God in this world, what are we left to? And it says there that we are slaves to this world then, we are slaves to our flesh, we are slaves to its cravings, we are following our own desires, whatever they may be, and we are under God's wrath. It's a, it's a bleak outlook. It's, it's not good. But it is the shed blood of Jesus. It is the blood, the blood, the blood of Jesus that brings us close to God. Where there was once a barrier, there's now access that we have. And our reconciliation to God comes through the cross, through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And Jesus came to bring us, it says there in Ephesians 2, what did he come to bring us? Peace. You know what that is? That, that's shalom. That's speaking to this all-encapsulating wholeness. So where we do not have wholeness in our lives, the blood of Jesus and the cross comes to bring us wholeness. And it goes on, Ephesians 2. And it says the reason what, what, the, what God is doing through this is he's making us to be a dwelling place for who? Anyone? Who's, who are we being made a dwelling place for? End of Ephesians 2. His, what? Spirit. Jesus, yes, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We are being made a dwelling place that God would reside in us and amongst us as the people of God. So it's both as individuals, but it's also as the church. This, and, and Paul goes on and he talks about this later in Ephesians 3, this profound mystery of what God is doing and what he's working out through the church. That it, it is a mystery that through the church, God is going to show what he is doing in this world and the incredible work he's doing through Christ through us. Yeah, 
Let that sink in. So, communion can be taken at other times, but partaking of it with the body of Christ you are joined to is a powerful affirmation of this unity together by the blood and through the cross. So communion, this is where communion is never simply an individual practice. Communion is not meant to be an individual practice. It was never instituted as an individual practice. Communion is a communal practice for the body of Christ. It is a powerful statement of our place in the body, that we are under the blood, that we are under the sacrificial death of Jesus. So, I remember taking communion as a kid. One of the other things that I, you know, the odd time you'd have like a really good piece of bread for the communion. And I know some of you, I've seen some of you, when we've had communion, you eye a nice piece of bread. And, and you know, there's sometimes when people come up and, we, and we, they partake of communion and they're ripping off a far bigger piece than other people. And sometimes other people are like, they just, I don't, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not, no judgment, folks. I, I just, it's interesting to observe how some people just take a morsel. Now, maybe, maybe they're fasting. I don't know. But like just a morsel. As a kid, I'm coming up and I'm like, I want like a massive piece of bread. And my parents are like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm hungry. I'm like, that's not what this is about. Yeah, but it's like really good bread. Now, whatever, funny little nuances of communion aside, <laughs> here's the thing. Jesus, in John 6, he talks, he has these words that you're like, this is kind of weird. Read John 6 and, and tell me that you don't go, this is a bit weird. When he goes, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it doesn't say in, in you know, in, 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 it doesn't say on the side, there's not a footnote saying, oh, but Jesus wasn't a vampire. It doesn't say that. It just says, Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and there was a bunch of, yes, yeah, some of you are looking, really? did he say that? Yeah, he said that. Go look it up. And after some people who were following him, not the 12, the other, there was other people following him, and they're going, Jesus, you're, you're kind of, this is weirding me out. And they were like, we're not following you anymore. Your words are just, they're a little bit too extreme. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't like try to explain it at all. Or John doesn't, at least when he's writing his gospel. He doesn't like explain. He just kind of leaves it there. Now, again, this is where we need all of Scripture <laughs> We need to understand what's going on here. We know that Jesus is speaking of spiritual nourishment. We know that he's speaking about partaking of his life. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel of John. It's all throughout that gospel, right? He's saying, you, you must partake of me. You must drink of my living water. You must abide in me. So here's the thing. You want to take a big honking piece of bread as part of communion because you want to be like, this is like a sign that I'm feasting on Jesus, Go for it. This is your permission. Because it reminds, honestly, if you're, if, you're, if you're chowing down on bread here and it's honestly reminding you to eat of the sufficiency of Jesus in your life, like eat a whole loaf. If, if that's what it does, I, I'd be like, go for it. This is awesome. But, but this connection, <laughs> some of you probably have a picture of Paul just like chowing down on an entire loaf. Maybe I should have done that. 
But this connection between fellowship with God and eating in his presence is something that is, it's profound, folks. And then we see it from Genesis to Revelation. You can eat of everything in the garden. Go ahead. You know what that was? That was communion with God. It was fellowship with God in the garden. Don't do this one thing. The rest of it, eat to your heart's content. We see it all the way to the end of Revelation, leading to this marriage supper of the Lamb that is this glorious picture of God's people coming together and feasting. It is going to be a feast. I have no idea what that's going to look like. Like that, It's going to be a feast. The, the picture in Scripture of this joy that comes from this fellowship, this eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord, you know, admittedly, we've actually lost something of that in the church. You know why? Because we've turned it into this. And I'm not saying, this isn't wrong, but in scripture, it was about a meal. And I've just, I've wondered about that. I've wondered about like, I've, over the years, I've always thought about that. Like maybe we need to do, we, we don't eat enough together. That, that's part of it, right? Like do we, do we actually eat enough together? Like feasting together and doing it under the Lord. Something to think about. But this is a significant part of, commun- of communion, that we, we are reminding ourselves of the blood of Jesus that covers us, the sacrificial death of Jesus, and we're reminding ourselves of the feast that is to come. Third reason why we partake of communion. We are embracing the sacrifice of Jesus as essential for our holiness. I'll say that again. We are embracing the sacrifice of Jesus as essential for our holiness. So we see this in Hebrews 10, where in Hebrews it speaks about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how the sacrificial system was not able, it was insufficient to deal with the guilt of sin in our lives, that the, the, the sacrifices could only cover the sin. They couldn't take away the sin that was present there. It was insufficient to deal with the root issues of sin. And so every year, the sacrifices would be a reminder, actually, to the people of, oh, yeah, I've got this presence of sin in me, and I don't really know what to do with it, and I can't get rid of the root of it. But there was this thankfulness that at least it could be covered by the sacrificial system, but it could not abolish it. So Hebrews 10 is speaking of this, and then it draws on Psalm 40 to speak of Jesus' commitment to the will of his Father, that there was this, that, that he was committed, I am going to do your will, right? The, the whole Garden of Gethsemane picture, like, whatever your will is, Father, I'm doing this. And through this will, it says there in Hebrews 10, Jesus has done away with the old covenant to establish the second, this new covenant that he speaks of. And it says there in verse 10, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So where the priest, the sacrificial system, this priest had to come and he had to offer sacrifices 
over and over and over and over again. The priest is standing there, and, 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 and it's really, he was standing there, and he would be drenched, soaked in blood. Because there's so much sacrifices going on and there's so much killing of animals going on to cover the sin. And so you can just imagine the priest, like he's, he's drenched in blood. It's a moving picture. Sacrifices that would never ever take away sins. And after Jesus offered himself, it says, the one time as the all-time sacrifice for sins it says he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 there, it says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So this, this, this alerts me to the fact that I am not sufficient in myself. I, I, can't, I can't do it myself. I, I cannot make myself good enough or clean enough for God. There's no, nothing I can do in my life. There's no practice. There's no commitment. There's nothing I can do that will go, okay, God, I, I think I'm good enough for you now. And you know what's, what's striking? As I've had conversations with people over the years, we actually think that. We, we actually have that in our psyche that we think we can make ourselves good enough if we do enough that God will, will, will let you in the side door. I'll let you in the back door. It's impossible. I, I, I cannot deal with my own sin. It is an absolute impossibility for me to think I could ever do that. Rather, it's the finished work of Jesus that makes us clean. And that word holy there speaks of our sanctification, which means being set apart for God that we are being set apart for him. And this process of being made holy, this process of being set apart, is an ongoing process. We are being made holy. We haven't been. You can never reach a certain level of sanctification in this life where you know, certain, certain people will believe that, that I can reach where I'm now sanctified. Nope, you're not. You're in the process of it. And, and what is that? Well, you have to keep surrendering your will, folks. Now, it's also important that we don't misunderstand here what we mean by sin. Sin is not simply something we do. Sin is the inherent state that we are in apart from Jesus. You have inherited a sinful nature thanks to Adam and Eve and the decisions they made. Thanks a lot. That's, that's, the, that's the state that we are in. We are born into that. That's the doctrine of original sin. It separates us from God. The moment that we enter this earth, we are separated from God because of this barrier of sin. And see, this. thank Jesus for his blood that removes the barrier. But sin, the reason for that is sin cannot exist alongside the holiness of God. It's an impossibility for that to ever be something that would coexist. And this is why confession and repentance is a necessary practice as followers of Jesus. Not just when you come to Christ, but ongoing. I am a sinner in need of salvation. So when we accept Jesus, the New Testament speaks of it in, in legal terms. 
that there's, there's a legal transaction that has taken place. Our standing as sinners, separated from God, under God's wrath, is changed. You move from death into life. Sin, so sin, as it, not just the state of sin, but sin as it pertains to actions and behaviors that are in disobedience to God's way is another matter. And we'll, we'll get to that here right away. But communion is embracing the sacrifice of Jesus as essential for this ongoing work of holiness in our lives. Okay. So we also got to talk about how do we interpret and work out 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32? Because if, if we've been in the church long enough, this is the passage that we all go to for communion, right? And it's, and it's quoted so many times in communion. It's probably the, it is the most common passage on communion that's read. And it's led to a lot of views in the church. And we have to briefly touch on this because it's, it's led to a lot of different thoughts, what 1 Corinthians is showing us is that it's the importance of the body of Christ. That, there, that, that coming together with the body of Christ for communion, the local of expression of the body, like it was in Corinth, is really important. And, and again, for them, the Lord's Supper was an entire meal. So, and, and the problem that was happening in Corinth is they were having this, this meal and they were coming together and they were treating it like any other common meal. And people were going ahead and they were eating and they weren't caring for others in the body. And it was just this mishmash of like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care about you. I don't care about you. And that's what Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 11. Disregarding the significance of what communion is. And so... What we see then from 1 Corinthians 11 is it's for the professing community of believers who profess Jesus is Lord. Paul says it right at the beginning of the letter to them. He says, you who are called to be holy. This, this is who you are, Corinth. You who are called to be set apart for the Lord. And so following Jesus, being called holy, being made holy, means obedience to Jesus. And so in verse 26 there, where Paul, he says there, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, and it's there, I think, in verse 25. Yeah, where, where Paul quotes what Jesus said in verse 25, that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So communion is infused with covenantal language. When, we're, when we enter into covenant relationship with the Lord, we actually also are called to enter into covenantal relationship with one another. And so communion is part of that. It's also about anticipation. It, it's, again, looking back to Jesus' death and looking forward to his return and what was so misguided in Corinth was that the people had made it all about themselves. They had disregarded the sacredness of what this was as a covenantal practice for the church. 
And so it, it draws us back to this thing of covenant. Covenant is over all of it. Walking in the light with Jesus and walking in the light with one another. So 1 John 5 to 7 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Again, this thing of darkness and light. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So examining ourselves before God and before others and walking together in, is part of walking in community. Not, not just when taking communion. See, that's the thing is we can really focus on this as part of communion, but it's not, it's not communion. Communion is just one of the practices of this thing of walking out, walking in the light with the Lord and walking in the light with one another. And that's a big thing. Anyway, as leadership, I can say we recognize our need to grow in this. It, it, it's, it's, it is an item for us of growth in the church. So, I don't know about you. I think, I think there's some commonly held views about 1 Corinthians 11 that we, part, we take out of these verses, we pull out. You know, and, and, and you know, people, you, you, you can sit there now as you get ready for communion. You can sit there and you go, okay, I, I got to now, I got I to examine myself before the Lord and I've got to confess everything and anything I know that's sin. And, 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 and there's almost a pressure that comes on you that, man, I got to like, is there stuff that I'm in sin that I don't know about and I got to confess and if I don't do this, I can't take communion? There's a lot of pressure that can come from that. Or the idea that there's this pursuit of perfection that I have to go through in order to get up and take communion. Right? We, and, we, and we think we can think like that in the body. So I want to, I wanna, in, in those areas where those kind of things, we can feel the pressure and the tension of that. Remember that communion is a gift of grace for fellowship with Jesus and with others. Now, there's a, ca- there's a caveat to this. If we are engaging in ongoing actions or behavior that is sinful with no immediate intention to stop, i.e. walking in darkness, we cannot claim to have fellowship with God. Communion is about covenant. It's about fellowship with Jesus. It's, It's about coming under the cross. It's about coming under the blood receiving the cleansing, purifying work of Jesus for our lives. So, and this is the thing we wrestle with, because we cannot claim to receive this if we are or have every intention of carrying out sinful intentions and behaviors in our lives. If I have every intention that I've got an attitude towards person X, Y, or Z here, and I have every intention that tomorrow I am going to, I'm going to rip that person 
and I am going to, and, or I'm going to talk to someone else about that person, and I know that I have every intention of doing that, or I have every intention of listening to garbage from someone else spoken about another person here, and if I know that I'm in that, and I have every intention of doing that, how can I claim to be walking in the light? That, that, that doesn't coexist with fellowship with Jesus. So we have to be honest about that with ourselves. I get it. That's, that's tough because we have to be honest about where we're at. What that is, that example, and there's how many examples we could pull out. That is at odds with Jesus being the functional Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. I listen to him. I'm walking according to his ways. So in that, when, when Christians sin, that doesn't change our legal standing before God. Your, your legal standing as justified, redeemed, reconciled is not changed because you sin. Like all of a sudden, and people worry about this. Oh, oh th- th- am I not going to heaven now? No, no, it's not about your legal standing before the Lord. It's about our fellowship with the Lord, which sin in in that relationship, sin damages us. It separates us from God. It, it, It grieves the Holy Spirit, and it brings discipline in our lives. You know, and, and this, I, I know that I, there's this, this thing in me where I am so good at doing mental gymnastics in my mind, if you will, to justify behavior. Right? We, we do something and then, we, and then we justify it in ourselves. And we have this, this, this little thing that goes back and forth in our minds about how we can justify this. Now, this isn't about perfection but it is about being truthful to ourselves. Where am I at? Will I sin in the future? There's, there's a question, right? Will, do I, will I sin in the future? Well, that's, that's pretty guaranteed. If I'm going to, right, who, who could stand up here and go, yeah, I'm not going to sin anymore. So then we wrestle with that. Well, then how can I take communion? So, so no go in communion then? The question is this. Are there ongoing patterns of behavior or actions in my life that I know to be sinful and that which I am doing nothing about? And this is where Hebrews is really, really helpful for us. Hebrews is written to a body of believers and it's, and, and it's just this wonderful progression in Hebrews that teaches us on this. It's calling us, Hebrews calls us right at the beginning to faithful devotion to Jesus. It says there, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then it, says, it goes on, it says, hold to the faith that we profess. And, and because of this faith that we profess, we have confidence to approach God's throne to receive mercy and grace in time of need. And it says, because of Jesus' blood, we can draw near to this throne with a sincere heart, being cleansed from a guilty conscience, it says in Hebrews 10. But then it goes on and says, but, and this is Hebrews 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the truth, we should expect judgment. 
It says that if this is our posture in our lives, then we treat the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing and we insult the spirit of grace. And in this case, it says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a dreadful thing to fall, to fall into the hands of the living God. So there's, there's, a, there's a soberness to this of examining ourselves. Rather, and this is where Hebrews then goes on to, rather make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, it says in Hebrews 12. And then it says that we are to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So we don't, we don't approach communion with fear. We don't, we don't have to approach communion with fear. But we are to approach it with sober examination in our lives. Are you hearing that through that? I really, I really don't, I don't want us to go, communion is a fearful thing. This is about perfection. Can I do this? Oh my goodness, did I not confess this one thing? It's not that. But it is a sober examination. Where am I at? Is Jesus the functional Lord of my life? Now in that, it's important not to judge or to make assumptions about others who choose not to take communion. Really, really important. Right? We, don't, we don't want to create any environment in the church where there's like this perceived pressure like you got to do this to be part of the club. It's not that. So I, I don't, you know, if, if, there's a, if there's a particular communion where person A, B, or C, or Paul decides not to partake in communion, no assumptions, no judgment. It's, it's allowing us as people to be obedient to the Lord and a freedom of obedience to the Lord. I, I can't worry about anyone else, right? This is about my responsibility before the Lord. Am I bringing judgment on myself? That's the question that I've got to be concerned with. So how, do, how, do we, how can we approach communion? Again, in this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think two really maybe helpful questions. Does my life and my conduct testify to the way of Jesus? Meaning, am I dealing with sin that's present in my life? Second is, does my behavior and conduct towards others in the body, the local body that I'm a part of, does my conduct and behavior in this body reflect the character of Jesus? Is, is there sin in my heart towards others that I'm not dealing with? And again, the last thing we want to do, the last thing is to every, anyone here to feel like there's any sort of public pressure or obligation, like, like I have to do this to keep appearances, right? Like we, we, we so, on so many things in the body, we have to guard against anything where it's like, I'm doing this to keep appearances. No, like, like no, let's, let's be under the lordship of Jesus. So, you know, when I was preparing this week, um, 
I was just, I was reminded of the, the depth and the weight of communion. It, it's, there, there is something that's so beautiful about this. But it comes with a lot of personal responsibility. Sober examination of self. And of the body around us. So I wanna, what I want to do to end is I want to just invite us to, to take a few minutes to let this rest to allow ourselves to place ourselves before the Lord, to do some of this examination before the Lord, allow us our hearts to be open to the Lord and say, is this something that I should participate in? And then as you are led, let's, we'll, we'll open up both tables and partake, and then in about five minutes or so, Jen will come up. Um, Jen, you can come up now, but um, in about five minutes or so, we'll, we'll partake of it together.